Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The grass withers and flower fades, but God's word endures forever. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for receiving his, his worship and receiving his, his sin canceling, atoning work for your spirit who makes all that real in our hearts. We pray asking you to, this night, make us more like Jesus. Father, if there's any here who need saving from themselves and saving from the wrath of God, we pray that you might use this few minutes in your word to bring that to fruition, that no one would leave this place apart from Jesus, but that you might 
bring faith to everyone here. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Here's the thing that you should take away from this passage if you don't get anything else. Until the resurrected Christ approaches you, you cannot fully understand. It is true in the Bible. We're told, come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, all who are weary and heavy laden. But that's written to the saints. If we are to have any hope of being relieved of sin, being removed from sin, it's going to be Jesus coming to us. You notice through these 18 verses, they all went to the tomb But as John says, we didn't understand. And it was not until Jesus approaches Mary that the whole process of understanding takes place. And that's the same with us. We, you know, we talk about come to Jesus. Well, we understand what we mean by that. We're calling people to faith in Christ. We need to believe in Christ. But ultimately, the hymn writer was right. I sought the Lord and afterwards I knew. I sought him because he first sought me. In other words, we come to Christ because he comes to us first. And here we see Christ coming in this dark moment in their lives, not just physically dark as they went in while it was early, still dark, but in this dark time as they lost the one that had been with them for so long and they didn't know what was going on. It's also a good reminder to us that you can sit, you can sit in here, you can sit in your Sunday school classes, children, you can sit in the catechism classes on Wednesday and you can hear and you can hear and you can hear and not get it. It doesn't change you. I mean, that's what's happened here, right? Now, I'm not for a moment saying, you you mean John and Peter were not Christians? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, they they were, as, as, uh, as Job said, uh, the skin of their teeth. That's about how, 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 uh, how, how steady they were in the Christian faith. Just by the skin of their teeth, they believed. And John admits it there, right? He says, look, at this time, we, we didn't understand. We came running to the tomb did not understand. And we can live that way if we're not careful and we don't need to live that way. We don't have to live that way. Um, we're going to look at two things in this passage. The first thing is just a quick focus on John's first words in this chapter, the first day of the week, and what's the significance of that. But then the bulk of the sermon is really on the 18 verses and we, 
we're, we're, we're seeing how that both the women and the men really struggled. And I, I've said this more than once recently. I, I, I hope you can take some comfort in the fact that uh, you're not alone in the Christian life when you struggle. That's the nature of living in a fallen world, in a world that's, that's battling us at every turn. Struggles are part of the Christian life. I was just sharing with someone earlier who was not familiar with Rosaria Butterfield, but that line in her first book that just comes back often to me when Rosaria says that when she, when God saved her and she became a Christian and everything is coming apart in her life, she's lost her tenured position at Syracuse University. Yeah, if you think you can't lose a tenured post, just renounce your homosexuality and claim Christ as the Savior who takes you out of sin and changes your life. And you'll find out that tenure is tenure. And it can be tenuous. But she describes her Christian faith as a train wreck. And she didn't mean by that uncertain and awful she just meant that it's a, it's a collision with this world. You being a Christian will be a head-on collision with this world in which we live. There will be struggles. And we see that in them here. So let's, just, let's get right to it. The first thing is, I just want us to note and not miss the significance of the first day for these disciples. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. Christ was crucified on Friday from the time of his crucifixion until 6 p.m. That marks out day one. 6 p.m. begins the day. We go to 6 p.m. the next day, which would be the Sabbath or Saturday in our reckoning. Day two. 6 p.m. on Saturday. And sometime early in the morning, some 12 hours or so into the third day, Mary comes. You say, well, she must have been expecting the resurrection. Obviously not. Where'd you put him? Where have you taken him? No, she came on the, on the first day of the week, or as we would reckon it, Sunday, because it was no longer the Sabbath. And she was coming to anoint the body. Remember back in 19, they had, they had prepared for that. But because the Sabbath was at hand, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus whisked him away and put him in the borrowed tomb, a new tomb, an unused cave. And so now Mary comes. We learn elsewhere in another gospel that there were more than just Mary, but nevertheless, John's focusing on Mary. Why? I, I can only guess. My guess is because she was the one that was saved from the most heinous and egregious sins. 
That's the best guess the commentators make on it is Mary is singled out here by John because she, she had experienced some of the most marvelous grace. She wasn't Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was this young girl who had grown up memorizing the scripture and could, could just let the Magnificat roll off of her lips and just all sorts of Old Testament biblical theology just rolled right into that beautiful song. That was not Mary Magdalene. She probably didn't know enough scripture to get out of the rain based on her, the way she's described and God saved her. And she's the one John wants us to see. She's the one that came. The one who's forgiven most is often the one who loves the most. And here's Mary running to the tomb. And she doesn't know what she's even expecting to find. She did not expect an empty tomb. It's the first day. Why does John mention the first day? And why does Matthew, Mark, and Luke specify the day? Why didn't they just say, on the third day, as Jesus said, because Jesus had told them this more than once, three days, I'll be in the tomb, and then I'll be raised. Why the first day? Well, because that was in the Old Testament. This is saying, hey, something's being fulfilled here. Let me read you something that I think will help you as we start understanding this. This comes from my dear friend, Dr. Ben Shaw, down at Reformation Bible College, my colleague for years at Greenville Seminary. He says this, the waving of the first fruits takes place on the first day of the week during the observance of unleavened bread. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23, Paul identifies Christ as the first fruits. It should also be noted that the resurrection of Christ, which Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians 15, took place on the first day after the Sabbath. The first day of the week during the period of the observance of the unleavened bread. Now in addition to the first fruits, we have the Lord's Day prefigured in Pentecost, which is fulfilled in Acts 2. It was also the first day of the week when Pentecost began. Then tabernacles. Tabernacles lasted eight days. And that eighth day was an additional Sabbath in the Old Covenant series of Sabbaths. And that eighth-day Sabbath was the first day of the week. See, all through the Old Testament, there, there was this little, this little sign, this little flag back there that said, there's something significant about the first day of the week. And now we know what it was. Jesus was the first fruit. The first fruit was on the first day after unleavened bread. And now what we've got here is this transition taking place from the seven days 
to the focus on the first day. What I'm saying is, is that it's no, no small thing and it's not insignificant that the first day is emphasized here because everything changes at this point. The old covenant Sabbath becomes the first day in the new covenant. That's the reason we worship on Sundays, on the first day. I remember a few years ago in the pastor's class, I was griping because I'd seen a calendar that was published that had Monday as the first day. You may have run across those from time to time. No, Monday's not the first day. Sunday is. Sunday's not part of the weekend. Sunday is the week start. Friday and Saturday are the weekend. Sunday is the beginning. It's the new. It's the it's 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 everything starts over. It's the first day. It's the first fruit. Christ, the resurrection, the first fruit. This is the first fruit. This day is the first fruit. It points us to the eternal rest and worship that we will enjoy with Christ when he comes again in the new heavens and new earth. That's the reason the old fathers of the church and the medieval fathers and, the, and our, our reformed fathers and Puritan fathers all talked about the Lord's Day being the best day of all because it's, it's the day that pictures for us heaven our existence with Christ, our presence with Christ. The book of Hebrews chapter 4 reminds us of this, that we still have a Sabbath this day, but it points us to a greater Sabbath when Christ comes again. So we have reference to the first day. In John 5, we've got the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, again, the resurrection and the first day is mentioned. 1 Thessalonians 4, the first day is mentioned. We read of the church gathering on the first day. We read Paul telling us about the church being gathered in Corinth on the first day of every week. In Acts chapter 20, you'll recall that they were gathered on the first day when Paul was preaching in the evening service and somebody got sleepy and fell out of the rafters and God got to do a miracle right there in restoring the sleepy head. So we find both the continuity of the old covenant, a Sabbath day, and the discontinuity with the new covenant, that, that that Sabbath day is a new day because it celebrates the resurrection of Christ. It's no longer looking forward to it, but it's celebrating it. That's the reason we often sing resurrection hymns on the Lord's day, just like we sing incarnation hymns on the Lord's day because we celebrate it all on this day. 
this same John was in the spirit on the Lord's day in the book of Revelation. The commentators often make note of this, that this was John giving some definition to the first day, giving this special name to the first day. So the first day, it's not insignificant that he mentions it. It's not just another way of saying, this is the third day, y'all. He was making a point that there's a significance. We're going to see something else in a moment, but we'll get there in a moment. Let's move on. Take no more time with that. Let's look at the struggle of the resurrection for the disciples. Someone told me this morning after the service that my reference to my dear friend Bill who confessed his struggles of his mind drifting and even even bad thoughts popping in his mind in the middle of worship services, he said, boy, I found so much comfort in that. That other people are sinners like I am, even in worship services. And that was the point, is that we have a Savior who saves us from that. Not just our Monday through Saturday sins, but our our morning worship sins and our evening worship sins. Let's look at the struggles. First, notice that the ladies struggle. I'm saying the ladies because Mary represents them here. Notice that if you go back to the, the other three gospel writers, the synoptics as we call them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll find the other ladies named and you'll find that they have the very same struggles. Now it starts off well, they came to the tomb, but as I already said, they didn't come to the tomb expecting to see a risen Lord. They were shocked that he wasn't there. Where have you taken him? Why have you taken him? It doesn't seem to have crossed their minds. Even though Christ, and if you go to the book of Mark, we have recorded for us at least three times leading up to his death and resurrection, at least three times, Jesus Christ said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer and die. And on the third day, I'm going to be raised. At least three times he had told them this. And they didn't get it. They didn't come looking for the resurrection. They came to anoint a dead body. So we can be good for them. They came to the grave. Well, yes, that's positive. But they didn't come for the right reason. We see their struggle too. Mary's weeping. And by the way, it's okay to cry. Men as well as women. It's okay to cry, particularly when we're talking about death. Those of you who've been around here a while and any of you who've heard me uh, preach a funeral, you know I say this. Death is not normal. We were not made to die. We were created, we were put in the garden to obey God and live forever. Death is, is as unnatural a thing as exists on this earth. So for us to grieve over someone who's died, 
to weep, to be sad. That's right and proper. You're not going to come to a celebration of my life when I die. It's going to be a funeral. I want it to be sad. No. But we're, it, it's, a, it's, it's not a celebration. It's sad. It's not, it's not normal. It points us to the only hope we have to deliver us from death and from sadness, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want you looking at me and my life. Funerals are about Christ and his saving us from death. It's not about what I've done or you've done. Y'all know I read obituaries. I did that before I got older. Some of the most sad obituaries, when it's all about the person. It's interesting. The ones that have a note about their their church membership and their faithful service and the minister that's going to preach the funeral, there's not nearly as much stuff in between about them. It's about they're loving the church and loving their Sunday school class and loving this and that and doing this and that for people. It's not about their awards at the lab or their awards at school or their awards at this and that. It's interesting. Do it sometime. Read those obituaries. And you can see how you don't want yours. They're struggling. She's sad. It's okay to be sad. But the reason she's sad is wrong. She's sad because she's missed the point of the resurrection. This is the third day. They should have... See, if I'd have gone to the tomb with Mary, I'd have been expecting it to be empty. Yeah. If I'm as honest as John gets, I wouldn't have been. The other disciple who reached it first also went and he saw and believed... For as yet, they did not understand the scripture. And if we're all honest, we'd all been there like Mary. Or more likely, we'll get to the men in a moment, we'd been there like the men, not. You notice they didn't come. It was the women who came. We see her struggle continue when Jesus shows up and she doesn't recognize him. We can be somewhat generous here and say, well, it's because of his resurrected body. Well, yes and no. Because they recognize him other times. That's going to be the nature of our resurrected body too because he's the first fruits of the resurrection. People say, well, I I wonder what I'm going to look like in the resurrection. Well, you're going to look like you. Which version? I don't know. Younger, older, 
I don't know. Maybe a composite of all. Maybe it'll be the perfect you. God might even be gracious enough or kind enough to say, okay, the resurrected Ken is going to be the Ken center that he imagines himself to be in the mirror. What he sees when he looks at him instead of what Sarah sees when she looks at him. I don't know. We're going to be recognizable. We'll be known as we're known now. But then there's something else about it. There's some mystery to it, isn't there? Because Jesus was not always recognized. And so I tell people, we're going to look like us, only different. And I don't even know what that means. So we can, we can be fair to Mary and say, okay, I get, I get it. I understand. But then she does recognize him when she hears his voice. Did you notice that? And I'm going to tell you, I can't be pit bull dogmatic about this, but I'm going to be fairly dogmatic. She knew Christ by the word, not by sight. And I don't think that's stretching this at all. It was when he spoke, she recognized him. Not what she saw. Faith comes from hearing, not from seeing. Now the evidences will help us in our faith, subsequent to our initial faith but the evidences won't generate faith only God can give faith and it comes from hearing and he speaks and she says Rabbani you just get the tenderness of it don't you it really comes through loud and clear sir if you have carried him away tell me where you've laid him I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Just the way he said her name. And that's the call he places on all of us. I was reading Isaiah 40. A portion of Isaiah 40. The latter portion of chapter 40 at the hospital this afternoon. And the portion I began reading is where the Lord says, uh, all those stars up there. Well, he begins with a question, who is like me? Really? There's someone else like me in this, in this universe? Okay. See those stars up there? Who made them? And who knows them all by name? Of course, the answer, I, you know, Isaiah standing there hearing the Lord delivering would have to say is, that's just what he did to Job in the latter chapters of Job too, isn't it? Who is a God like me? Who can control the beast of this world? The one who made them can. Why did I bring that up? If he named the stars, and if he knows them all by name, he knows us. So when he calls our name, 
That's pretty special. And it was special to Mary. She recognized. And what does she do? Well, Mary takes off. She takes off. And she tells the disciples. Mary went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, that he had said these things to her. That's the way it ends. But we also have in the middle of this, she ran and went to Simon. And Simon and John, we suppose, being the other disciple whom Jesus loved, they come. Well, we not only see the struggle of, of the woman and the women. And that, by the way, struggles are common and we should find some little degree of comfort there. But we should find even more comfort in the fact that Mary comes to faith. She comes to understand because Jesus comes to her. That's, that's the main thing I want you to see. And then the men. The men didn't run to the tomb first thing. But they do come. Now think about it. These are men. These are men who saw Jesus walk on the water. These are men who saw Jesus break the fish and the bread and multiply it and feed thousands. These are the men who saw Jesus heal the little girl. These are men who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the tomb after he was already stinking. And they don't come to the tomb on the third day. They don't even seem to be curious. That's enough to tell us how they struggled with their faith. Now listen, when I say struggle, I'm not excusing. And I'm not saying, okay, well it's okay to struggle. We'll just sit and be mediocre Christians. We'll just sit and just, you know, we'll just sit and get by. That's not the point. The point is, that's part of our Christian life. And that should be what propels us. To grow in our faith. That should be what clues us in to say, oh, Lord, I'm struggling with my faith. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Increase my faith. That's what this should do to us. It shouldn't bring us comfort so much as it should be discomforting to us. Yeah, this is ordinary Christian life. Struggling with faith. I need more faith. I want more faith. Give me more faith, Lord. So the disciples, the men, they come running. And I'm just going to simply point out to you the obvious. Mary came. She went and got them. She comes back. The disciples come. They look in. Huh, he's gone. 
they go back to the house. Verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. Again, the, the, the unrealistic, pietistic Wilborn says, no, I'm hanging out here. I want to see what else, what's, it, what's going to happen. I want to find out. But they just going back to the house. I guess they got up, got just, you know, brought out of the house too early. They need to get back to the eggs and bacon and biscuits and stuff. But Mary didn't. Mary's really the hero here, isn't she? Now, for everyone who's ever said Covenant Presbyterian Church may be suspect of being, you know, male-dominated and abusive and I don't know if anybody's ever said that, but, you know, when you've got male leadership these days, it's something people throw out. Just tell them you heard Pastor Wilborn say Mary Magdalene's the hero of this story because, well, Christ is the hero of the story, but Mary is the, the exemplary one here. She stays. She talks to the angels. Where'd you take him? She turns around. Jesus is standing there. She doesn't recognize him and his, his resurrected body. And she says, thinking, oh, well, he's come to do the, do the garden work. Early in the morning, while the dew's on, that's when you go do your work before it gets too hot, right? Your yard work, your garden work. He's there. Okay, he's a gardener. And where did, where'd you put him? And Jesus says, why are you weeping? She still doesn't recognize, but it's when he calls her name. So we see the struggle, both the men, the women, and we see the faith. Again, we know that the disciples had heard the words of Christ, but it's not until Jesus comes to them that they start sorting this out. And again, I'm going to urge you, it's not enough just to, just to sit under the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word. It's not enough just to read God's word. Our prayer for one another, our prayer for ourselves, is always when we start reading the Bible, when we sit down to hear a sermon, as we prepare to come to the worship services morning and evening, you know, by the way, did you notice something here? Did you notice? Uh, well, you didn't because we didn't get to it. We will next week. But in verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, John brings this back up again. The first day of the week. On the evening, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Jesus comes to them. In the morning and again in the evening on the first day. I'll just let you ponder that this week. Again, I don't think that's insignificant. I don't think it's just happenstance. We as Calvinists don't believe in happenstance. But even if we did, this ain't it. From the morning to the evening on the first day. The Lord came to his people. 
Jesus comes to them. They hear his voice. They believe. They understand. And that's what it's going to be for all of us. We should pray every every day in our own lives, every Lord's Day as we approach it, every Lord's Day as we enter into it, Lord, come. That's what, that's what the invocation is all about in the morning worship and the evening worship. We're invoking the presence of God. We're asking him to come. And often I will say, or Pastor Morris will say, Lord, if you don't come and be with us, we're going to leave just like we came. We need you to be here with us. And when he came to Mary, things changed. And that's always the case when Jesus comes to his people. Father, thank you for this passage, simple and yet so deep and profound. We ask you to work in our hearts. Amen.